Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Life and Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with pastor, author, dad, and cultural commentator, John Tyson. John is the founding pastor of Church of the City, New York, as well as the author of nine books, including Sacred Roots, The Beautiful Resistance, and The Intentional Father, subtitled A Practical Guide to Raising Sons of Courage and Character. And it's this book, along with the discipleship course that came out of it, that forms the basis for much of our conversation today, particularly the second half of the episode. John's passionate about and committed to equipping fathers and men in churches to play an active and intentional role in the discipling of their sons and daughters. And this is a subject that I'm heavily invested in as well. I have three young sons of my own, so I was really looking forward to talking with John. And if I'm honest, a little nervous. <laughs> I've read and listened to a lot of his stuff before I spoke to him. And so he's a bit of a celebrity in my world. <laughs> Now, before diving in, let me read for you just a couple of quotes from the book, The Intentional Father. John writes this, The role of fatherhood is one of the most overlooked yet crucial roles in our society. The data and our own experience could not be clearer. When a father is present, emotionally engaged and involved in his child's life, the child has a tremendous advantage in the world to navigate its complexities and the challenges with joy and confidence. And then he also writes this, Children without fathers are four times more likely to live in poverty and they are more likely to suffer emotional and behavioural problems, have higher levels of aggressive behaviour than children born into married homes, have two times the risk of infant mortality, are more likely to go to prison. Only one in five inmates grew up with their father present and they are twice as likely to be involved in early sexual activity. So I think equipping and encouraging men and dads in churches to engage with the life of our younger sons and daughters is a hugely important one. And I hope that this episode does you the world of good. Actually, why don't you, why don't you take a moment now to think of someone you know who might appreciate listening to it and then you know send it their way. Uh, and one final thing before we get into the episode. Now, in the interest of trying to keep this episode as close to the hour mark as I could, I cut it down. But that content is available, an extra 10 minutes of it at the end of the episode is available on the YouTube video of this episode, uh, which you can find through our website or on our YouTube channel by typing in New Ground Churches or Life and Leadership. It's there that John unpacks some of the specifics to do with the primal path, the discipleship course for sons. So go there if you're interested in finding out more about that. Okay, here we go. Brace yourselves, buckle up. And to kick things off, I asked John simply about his devotional habits and some of the things that he does to stay fresh and growing in God. Over to John. Enjoy. Mate, it is a delight uh, to be able to chat with you today. So thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, I'm originally from um, the Assemblies of God. I became a Christian in the AOG. And uh, they tend to help you get a good start in passion for God. Um, it's, it's pretty rare to meet a lukewarm AOG convert. So um, I am had a wonderful, wonderful experience in my late teenage years, met Jesus, and really was baptized into a culture of prayer in my youth group. And in some senses, I've just tried to steward and keep alive what I encountered um, as a young person. So I'm a big believer in passionate fundamentals. I'm just a big believer in, in the word of God, reading the word, meditating on the word, 
praying the word, enjoying the word, marinating in the word, meditating on the word, and then bringing your insights and the promptings of the Holy Spirit from your reading to the Lord in prayer. So that would that would constitute um, the majority of what it is that has fueled my faith, hearing the word of the Lord. It's living and active. It's a book that divides soul and spirit. It gets to the heart of human wrestling in fear to the divine call and the divine work. Those are my two fundamentals. And then I love to sort of pray and walk around the city uh, right before uh, this podcast with you. I was out in Central Park. It's in uh, splendid autumn glory. Everything's yellow. Uh, it was so amazing. I, I just kind of couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. So yeah, walking around, seeing seeing what God's done, uh, having the promises of God fuel your spirit. Um, th- those are the fundamentals, mate. So I would say I I, I think I do what most people do, which is read the Bible and pray. You call it a quiet time. I call it devotions. But I try and put some sauce on it, which means, you know, don't leave the text till the heart burns. You know, God wants to speak to us. Like, Lord, speak to me through your word. And then take that, not as a full stop, but take that into intercession, prayer, worship, and joy. And um, honestly, mate, that has sustained me through a, a word from God at the right time has sustained me through hell and high water. So uh, it's not, you know, I, I'm in proximity to the poor. Uh, I'm surrounded by people that pushes my heart out of complacency. You know, I was walking around um, pretty early this morning around hell's kitchen, just grieved at the godlessness, heartbroken, seeing people in the early hours, um, leaving bars and uh, i mean it's just hard to put into words like you just see the brokenness of humanity and um that also fuels my heart you know jesus saw the multitudes he wept over them he's moved with compassion i, I think i definitely feel that so it's nothing no secret source mate passionate fundamentals yeah yeah but i guess well, i mean a lot of pastors we listen to this we're trying to in- encourage them in a lot of what we do and I, I know for people who enter pastoral ministry they get into it for they, they love the bible they've got a passion for the lost they want to preach the gospel but then so easily and so quickly we can get taken up with answering emails and um you know all, all the other kind of practical bits that go with church life and yet the the one thing that pastors will agree is like if we could nail a job description for a pastor it's prayer and devotion to the word and yet those are the things that often get squeezed squeezed out most quickly and those are things often as a pastor I don't know if you're like me but I feel when I when I take a time in my diary to just go prayer walk I think to myself this doesn't feel productive I can't be paid to do this this is crazy and yet that's also the the one thing I'm paid to do that's a great point that is what you're paid to do it's the greatest privilege on earth yeah so how do you make sure you mentioned you're just walking around Central Park praying how do you make sure that that remains a, a kind of core feature of your diary time well, look, mate, you got to fight for it. I mean, you got to just get, you just got to, you've got to be obstinate. You've got to withdraw. Jesus often withdrew to solitary places. You just got to say, sorry, just say, no, I can't. I won't. I'll do that later. I'm unavailable. I wish I could. My heart is bigger than my schedule. You've got to have a hundred ways to say the same thing, which is yes to Jesus first. Um, and, uh, and then everybody else after that. So part of it, a lot of times pastors don't get training in time management. 
uh, often have poor executive skills so that they don't know how to organize their life. And so sometimes that lack of training or development, you know, can be an excuse, um, often not their fault. Um, but you've got to learn to prioritize and you've got to put the big rocks in first and you've just got to insist on it. If I let, if I spend my whole life reacting to the needs of the crowd, mate, I would get nothing done. So you've got to play offense, not defense. You've got to basically say what sort of, so I just ask myself, what sort of man do I want to be on the earth? I want to be a godly man. I want to be a prayerful man. Um, I want to know Jesus. I want to be clothed in power. I want that Abba cry to come out of my heart with force. I want to be fully alive, strangely alive in a lukewarm world. And then you just got to build your life around that. I mean, Paul is very, very clear on this. I mean, he talks about um, fighting, but boxing, but not just one punching the air. So that's obviously about um, in intentionality. Um, he talks about running the race in such a way, not being entangled in civilian affairs. So you gotta like you gotta take responsibility. I will say this as a pastor as well. You often have way more autonomy than the typical person who's pulling in a, you know an eight to six sort of a job. So. That can be good, which means you can do whatever you want, or you have a, certainly have a lot of flexibility, or it can be bad because you think, well, I'll get to that later because I have quite a bit of flexibility. So I would just say, put the big rocks in first. Eugene Peterson used to put it in his calendar and write in um, meeting <laughs> meeting with John. Okay, so he'd write it in his calendar. Oh, sorry, I can't meet him. I'm already meeting with John, but he didn't want to tell you that the you know the John was John Dunn. Or you know, meeting meeting with um, D, and he didn't want the world to know it was Dostoevsky. So he would put like the things that mattered to him in the calendar first, and then build around it. Here's what I've learned in doing this, because I I would say I have been quite insistent and consistent on this. People respect you. Um, the people respect. Hey, I, I understand you're a pastor. You have a lot of responsibilities, and so I'm I'm grateful to sort of flex around the availabilities that you have. And people are grateful when you show up with a full heart. I don't think that tired, exhausted, busy pastors um, are the gift their congregations need. Um, you may be tired and exhausted, but that's because you've poured yourself out and you've walked with Jesus. So again, I do want to acknowledge it's hard. You've constant pressure, constant crisis, constant drama. If only people's issues would remain true to your schedule. But it just doesn't work like that. So I don't want to make it sound easy. It's the hardest of all things. But I think I've just made a decision. This is just going to be true about me. You know, I'm going to stand before Jesus and give an account for my life and leadership. And I want to make sure that when I show up, I'm ready. So that's great. I was just reading actually the other week that uh, the chapter in Contemplative Pastor by Eugene Peterson, where he says that line he says, A busy pastor ought to sound like an adulterous wife. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't, it shouldn't oh, be the so case <laughs> that we're supposed to be those who are, well, to use another phrase, a non-anxious presence in the world. Um, so tell us Which about I some think of those. I, I think yeah. we're meant to be more than that. We're meant to be a kingdom presence. See, and not, we're, we're meant to show up. And when we show up, we show up with the authority of Jesus. When we show up, we show up with um, clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. When we show up, so it's not just enough to, to not be anxious. We've got to show up with positive peace. We're not just differentiating. We're distributing the kingdom. There's another level above that. 
So I'm, I want to show up and I want to have a word in my heart. I want to be listening to what the Holy Spirit's saying. I want to have something to give, you know? And so I have found hard boundaries being on when I'm on and being off when I'm off. Like an athlete, you know, which they, they, they pour themselves out to exhaustion, then they recover. A lot of folks, I think, are sort of half on all the time. And that's where I think a lot of the pain ends. So yeah, those boundaries I think are, are really important. Not wanting to like just dispute what you're saying. I just I want to I want more than just non-anxiousness. I want positive presence. You know. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate that kind of change there, Gatham. What do you think some of the the challenges are that the church in the West is facing at the moment, and what do you think some of the the needs of the hour are? Well, I have, um, you know, I think distraction we're distracting ourselves into oblivion um yeah definitely anxiety it's the most anxious generation hatred um expressive individualism secularism all those sorts of things i think they're very real forces uh that we wrestle against i've got two kids who are gen z both young adults in their 20s and i have tremendous compassion for them i I know that being in lockdown was really hard on my kids mental health like it really was. I mean, we're not designed to be isolated and view our lens through a screen. So I have a lot of compassion um, for what I think particularly younger folks have been through. Uh, that, you know, very, very traumatic. In the US, it's it's definitely worse. We've gone, for, we, you know, what, what politics did to young people in America was just horrific. But we do have to be able to respond to it. Empathy is one thing, but providing care and help is another. So I, I definitely think that Christians uh, and what we bring to the table through history, what we bring in life with God, these are the deeper answers. So I, I, in all of our empathy, we want to move beyond just connecting and compassion. We want to move into actually like giving them the hope that's within us. We want to help them walk with your, uh, God, access his peace, show them the depth of church history so they can see, hey, what you're feeling is a part of life. The saints from history are very familiar with what you're feeling right now, and I want you to know there's some tools to help you get through it. So, yeah, I think it's it's sort of the basic things. I mean, Satan's got a, a core set of strategies. He's very good at tempting and destroying people. And now it's, I call it tecularism. It's a combination of like all the secular ideologies facilitated through devices, so it's totally normalized. And um, so, you know, God put us in the garden to shape the world for his glory. And what tech does is it takes our proclivities and preferences, weaponizes them back on us, and the things that we were given dominion to shape are now shaping us. The algorithm knows you, maps you, understands often your worst things, your consumer tendencies, um, you know, your glimpses at inappropriate content. And then now that feeds you an algorithm and an onslaught of that. And then it's just like a bit of a doom cycle. So these are hard times, uh, but I think they're very, very hopeful times too, because I think we're really getting to sort of the end of the secular malaise. You know, when Alpha asked the question, is there more to life than this? That is the what, the, and we have a gigantic yes. And I think that's the, the the way that we should be doing evangelism is just letting people, there's more than identity construction, which is very fragile and self-defined, which requires a constant propping up and validation. There's more than just overwhelm and exhaustion as we trot from 
thing to thing, often deeply wondering, is any of this make any difference? Uh, there's more than just tribal politics where we're hating one another and and um, living in a in a fear based world, and that's why it's very important to talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Jesus, who Jesus is, and the kingdom. That's what we're all trying to. That's what we're after here. And so when we get off message as a church, we 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 just get sucked into all the drama. But when we really hold forth the vision of Jesus and His kingdom, we've really got something to say. Mm, that's great. Well, you said remind me a bit of um, was it the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis? That at the end of it, well, we when we finally think we've conquered nature, we'll turn around to realize nature's conquered us. That we we've been mastered by the thing we've been trying to master the whole time, because we are like. And one of the areas where you see this most, and I'd love to come on and talk about um, your book, The Intentional Father and the Primal Past, because I do think one of the areas where you see this most is the algorithms and the the traps that young men in particular seem to fall into with video games and porn. Uh, the way that they are kind of tempted and drawn into something, but then this kind of super normal principle takes over that means that they're now hooked and it seems to be ravaging lives. What are some of your, I know you've written a lot and think a lot about, um, so should we say masculinity, men, discipling boys. I'd love to come on and talk about that, as I said, but what are some of your reflections on the challenges facing boys, particularly in our culture? Boys uh, are not doing that well as a whole. Um, you know, I mean, I don't have access to UK data, but the US data is that boys are, are falling behind in many of the key metrics, uh, education, socialization, motivation, uh, their ability to interact, definitely um, media addiction. Teenage girls tend to struggle, you know, with social media. That seems, I mean, you've seen all the research and how toxic I saw, I just saw, I think, 26 states are suing Meta uh, right now, which is quite significant. Might, it might actually be up to 32 uh, if I didn't see the update. So teenage girls tend to struggle with the socialization and what social media does, but guys, it does. It tends to be porn and video games. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's changing our brains. It is, it is rewiring our brains around misogynistic violence towards women. Um, I'm not an, I'm not a, well, I'll say this for myself. I've, I mean, I don't honestly think I've probably played, played in my entire life, just turned 47, two hours of video games in my entire life. I mean, I just, I just, that's not out of self-righteousness. I didn't have video games growing up. We never owned an Atari I never bought an Xbox. I don't, I just, this wasn't my, my world. So, but, so I'm just not personally a, a, an anti video game person. I, I've done a bunch of research. They do tend to say that up to an hour a day can have some benefits in terms of creativity, um, uh, online community. Like I'm not, a, I'm not like a forbid it and get rid of it, but gee, are they building video games designed to limit it to one hour a day? Of course they're not. It's all addictive technologies. So, um, yeah, I think it's a little bit more about everything in moderation. I think uh, porn is an absolute disaster. Um, when I think about the amount of violent sex the typical 15-year-old kid has seen, I just want to weep. That's going to sabotage his marriage. It's going to sabotage his dating. We're going to need like the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit to wash our minds from that stuff. Very, very challenging. Um, and I think part of our big reaction is 
I think there's two temptations. Number one is to normalize it where it's just a bit of a struggle. Well, it's just struggling a bit right now. It's like you used to get fired if you looked at internet porn. Now it's you just need accountability. So I think one temptation is normalizing. The other one is is creating shame around it. Shame doesn't help either because shame just makes you hide it. It becomes a secret. And what we've got to have is like a more robust vision of sort of like a vision of nobility and self-control, you know, that we may live self-controlled, upright, and holy lives. That's what grace does. It trains us and it teaches us. So trying not to is not going to work. And telling people to stop it because they suck is not going to work. We've got to really help people understand spiritual practices, the power of the grace of God, a compelling vision of nobility, like a man under control is a thing of, that's a thing of beauty. And then a man who is saving and channeling his sexual energy in a godly direction, that's a gift to the world. Look at the amount of damage about men who haven't been able to control themselves sexually and the damage it's done to the church. So I don't pretend in any way that these are easy things. These are the great wars of our age, but we just got to keep working on it. Honest conversations. Uh, mm. Yeah, it feels like one of, like you said, the great the great wars of our age. I was about to say, like it seems it seems to me that not a week goes by where we don't hear of some pastor at the moment falling in in an area of sex, money, and power. And I guess that's, it's always been the case in the Middle Ages. They criticised, you know, the monks for their promiscuity and stuff. Um, but what, why, why is it that we can't seem to move past this? What, is, what are some of your reflections on some of the, the abuse scandals and just heartbreak you see across the church? How does it affect you as a pastor? And what are some of the ways that you, you take courage and encouragement? Well, I mean, I'm just so grieved, mate. I mean, it feels like there's no part of the church, the Reformed Church, the Charismatic Church, the Pentecostal Church. It, there's just some measure of compromise across the board. My starting point is let him who stands take heed lest he fall. It's self-examination. It's not outward to critique. It's inward to repentance and examination. Lord, is there any ways that I'm not honoring you? Am I giving the enemy a foothold? You know, it's reevaluating my how I spend time with people and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it, it, it does, it creates deep, deep sadness and self-reflection. Um, what's the cause of it? It's a combination of things. Well, number one, um, part of it is spiritual warfare. You know, strike the shepherd, you scatter the sheep. That's a huge thing. Um, number two, it's, it's a poor systems. You know, we don't have enough accountability in the way that our ministries happen. And um, that, you know, that's often unhealthy. We have narcissistic followers or, or naive followers who often don't have the courage to push back on leaders. So we've got to have, you know, uh, more transparency with people speaking to things. Um, and I think sometimes we do this to ourselves because we value people's gifts more than their life with God or their character. And so, you know, we often overlook things or we put, we platform people too soon or we give them too much responsibility and their character can't handle it. Um, and then, yeah, like you said already, um, people don't cherish the presence of God as the source, you know, here's what I get in the presence of God the most fear and love. That's what I get in the presence of God. Holy fear. You know, we were singing this morning, holy, holy, holy. I could feel the holiness of God. Awe, conviction, reverence—like not not like, not like, um, 
upper God, but like God almighty, you know, the King showed up in his splendor and uh, we get too cute with God. We've lost the fear of the Lord, but then you get the love of God, you know, his heart slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, rich in mercy. Um, those seem to be the guardrails that sort of keep me on track. The fear of God, the love of God, um, and fear of consequences. You know, I don't want to discredit the church of Jesus. New York doesn't need another scandal, mate. Doesn't need another pastor scandal. So now that being said, our culture is not helping either because our culture, Satan's job description, he's a tempter and he's an accuser. And that combination of temptation and accusation is like a one, two knockout punch. Um, so sometimes there are ungodly accusations. You know, the apostles were accused of all sorts of heinous things. Um, so we will be attacked and accused in our leadership, but it's about being able to say in our hearts that we fear the Lord, we love the Lord, and we keep those things on track. So yeah, systems, spiritual warfare, um, making sure our character's in place, self-awareness, being honest if we're struggling, bring it into the light. You know, I'm a big believer. If you bring it into the light, almost anything is possible. But if you get caught, man, and start shutting down options real quick. So, man, my, I, I said to my wife, she's like, how many, like, what's your bucket list? What do you got? What do you want? What have you got left in your life? And I'm like, I got one bucket list. Finish well. I want to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom because I've added to my faith. And I want to take this, the promises of God that enable, enable me to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world through lust. Continue to grow in that and, and, and show up and people just go, you know what, John, um, you had the baton in your hand and you ran your race. Wasn't a perfect race full of mistakes. Um, but you, you handed it on. The next generation's got it. You know, I'm a big believer in uh, Zinzendorf's, you know, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten, man. That's the vision. Get to the end. That's it. That's my bucket list, man. Finish without scandal. That's amazing. And I, and I guess a, bit, a big part of that, like you said, the fear of God, knowing who you are before God um, is important because that stops you thinking too highly of yourself before other people. I guess a pastor like yourself who has experienced a fair degree of uh, success, we might say, in the world's eyes in terms of people knowing you, reading your books, popular speaker, popular author. It's 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 easy or tempting, I imagine, for people in your position to start to want to believe the press that other people are saying about them when it's positive. But as you said, before God, you realise this. If, if you have a vision of God as a holy God, uh, then I think that helps us keep our lives in perspective and in their right order. Um, Here, here's what I know. God is more committed to his glory than your brand, your church, your position. He can handle scandal. Um, but what he can't handle is that secret sin. And so it, at some point, this is coming out. At some point, this is coming out. And I'm a big believer in creating a culture where we honor God through confession. And by the way, I mean, everybody knows we sin, mate. We're, we're not saints. You, you know what I mean? Like we're not sinless. And um, everybody knows we struggle. So we've got it like regular, repeated repentance and confession so that it doesn't log jam up to a huge issue has been very, very helpful. Mm, so good. So good. I mean, so one of the, one of the consequences for a, for a lot of the promiscuity uh, and 
sex obsession of our age, the, the negative consequences by and large are borne by the women in our society who it seems there's not a week goes by again where it's not just in the church. You know, I was just counting in this past few months, we've had scandals in the headline from almost every sector of society where there's been some level of sex abuse scandal. So the women are suffering and being battered and literally sometimes or certainly worn down, beaten down and their image and you can I have sympathy for this, they're, they're yeah, they're objectified and they're in, increasingly their image of men and masculinity is that it, it is inherently toxic, dangerous, destructive and something to avoid, minimise, restrict, downplay, ignore altogether, push out the way. It seems to be that the battle, and it's often it's a reaction to some of the um, the abuse and sin of men, but the, 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 the tension between the sexes and the battle between the sexes seems to be amping up. And yeah, I think, you know, I'd love to come on and talk about the intentional father and what you're doing, because I do think part of the answer that we have in the church and the gospel is um, the need to get alongside and encourage men to take seriously the responsibility, should we say, of their masculinity and in then training other sons in that and how to handle that masculinity. So I'd love to, I don't know, there's not really a question there, just some thoughts. I'd love to get your reflections on some of that. Well, um, I, I am glad we live in a time of history where women are more empowered, can bring their gifts to bear on society. I, I think that's a very, very good thing. I am I am very pro-women. I don't want um, women to suffer because men have to work their issues out. So I just want to start by saying that. I think I'm, I'm ex- tremendously excited about the educational, vocational opportunities women are experiencing in the world. That is good for society. It's good for all of us. Many, many gifted, competent women didn't have access. And I think we've been robbed as a society of the gifts of women because they didn't have access to many things. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, man, many of the worst things that happen on earth every day are done by men. Most of the violence, most of the sexual assault, most of the crime happens every day is happen, happens by men. But you know what? Many of the best things that happen on earth every day are also done by men. Sacrificing themselves, fighting back, providing, protecting, caring for others. So the case is many of the best and worst things that happen on earth are because of men. And um, the solution is not to get rid of men or to demasculate men. The goal is to form them, is to form them into the right kind of men. And you want men, I mean, you look at, Look at Jesus and look at the women in the Gospels and their approach to Jesus. Here they found a man they could trust. Women who'd been exploited by multiple men, sinful women, found peace and comfort in the person of Jesus. This is God in the flesh. They said no to the religious men, couldn't trust them, no grace, no hope there. No to the sinful men who just wanted to use them as a commodity. But here, for some reason, in the midst of all the men of their age, they saw Christ and believed, I will be safe with this man. And so I think our goal is to form men who women can be in their presence and be safe around, men who can be trusted with power, uh, men who love and don't objectify, men with a measure of self-control and restraint. And, and here's what I want to say. These men will not um, emerge by accident. If we let our society, ha- you know, roll its scripts and practices as the default settings, 
for the men in our world, we will have cowards or predators and almost nothing in between. And I think the goal of discipleship is to help people become like Jesus. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And Jesus was the perfect combination of strength and humility, love and hate, the things Jesus hated, um, tenderness and conviction. Jesus just seemed to get these things right. And I think often um, progressives undo masculinity, sort of like they just sort of want a genderless goodness, which we're, which we're turning, finding out, all of us, it's quite hard to produce that. And then often people on the right fall into those stereotypes unintentionally as a reaction. And I, th I honestly think like the reformed camp in the US definitely fell into that a little bit. You know, and look at the fruit of it. You got a bunch of leaders getting pulled out for being jerks. They're not like Jesus, you know? So I think the goal is to get our eyes on Jesus, who is the best man who's ever lived, who promises, I preached on this on this past Sunday. Luke 6, Jesus says, can the blind lead the blind? No, they'll both fall into a pit. And he says, but the student who was fully trained will be like the master. That word in Greek, fully, what it means to be fully trained, is such a rich word, man. To be made who we ought to be. It's a beautiful word. And Jesus promises that if you learn from me, I will make you who you're meant to be, and you will be like me. So he warns us against false teachers, false ideologies of the right and the left, and promises if we submit ourselves to him, he will make us who we're meant to be. So that's the great task of life is to know Jesus and become like him. So that's one of the great projects or the, the great assignments I felt on my life, not because I think I've got it together. I mean, trust me, man, I'm trying to get out of this every other day. Um, I just feel like there's such a need and, and, and I'm just heartbroken, having been a youth worker, and now the majority of our church in New York is in their 20s. And what I see is a bunch of saddened, unformed men. And the hunger, men don't want to be predators and men don't want to be cowards. The ache to just say, do something with me, shape me, help me is so high. So I think it's a huge opportunity for the church. And I think it's a huge opportunity for the church to bless society by producing the right kinds of men. Yes. Oh, man. I mean, the, the book, The Intentional Father, I listened to it a couple of years ago now, and I, I listened to it a lot as I just ran around where I live, just crying with delight and longing for this sort of vision, man, because I I grew up with a good dad, but and so I still kind of wonder, why is there an ache and a longing in my heart? And I think there is within every... A lot of men that I speak to are longing to have another man. I always think of John the Baptist with Jesus. Another man say to them, I must decrease that you might increase, you know, to, to encourage, to mentor, to coach, to pour into, or is the word you kind of you use a lot in uh, the importance of helping sons, if we talk about sons, helping sons initiate, be initiated into manhood. Because um, you, you draw a distinction between boys, well, you acknowledge that boys crave initiate, initiation into manhood. And it's not something that's necessarily shared by women or it doesn't seem to be as much of a need historically in societies for women to be initiated. I think you quote Richard Rule, who, um, who observes that women seem to have a, a more of a natural biological rhythm that helps them initiate, be initiated into womanhood. Um, talk to us a little bit about this as an idea then um, of the longing in men's hearts for initiation and inclusion into mass manhood um, and, and how you're, what you, what you suggest and put forward as a way of kind of helping men do that. 
Well, every society except our society, late modern society, has had a rite of passage of some kind to sever. So a rite of passage is designed to take you through a gauntlet of transformation and to create a structure so that you don't fall apart in the journey. And so that you come out on the other side, transformed into someone else. It's a liminal space. It's an in-between space. And, and I think most societies have sort of learned that if you don't create a pathway for men, they can fall apart in that, that journey. So if you are not initiated, a man will self-initiate. That's a fact. What, what, is, what is gang violence? So normally in the UK, you often have gangs where kids get stabbed, knife gangs. What is that? That's an attempt to say, what do I do with my strength? What do I do with my aggression? Where do I point this? Um, no one's telling them what to do with their strength or their aggression. So it just it bleeds out in unhealthy ways, self-initiation. Um, so they basically had a series of steps, almost like there was a code embedded. It's a kind of general revelation that was embedded in all societies. Men need to be severed from the environment of childhood thinking. Um, they have to they have to have some sort of invitation and wake up call normally by a community of men. There's going to be some sort of death of childhood thinking. And these are often very, very traumatic. So some some communities like the the, the initiation rites border on hazing and uh, really intense, but they want to shake you awake, shake you out of your childhood thinking. Then you go through a series of training where the older men basically teach you um, who you are, what story you're in. What skills are needed to function as a part of the society as a whole? And then what it means to be a man who is recognized with honor in that particular community. This is a years-long series. It's a combination of theology, skill, practice, uh, social hierarchy, apprenticeship, taking your role, learning. At the end of this journey, they'll send you out on your own to some sort of quest to see if you've got it in you. Am I ready, willing, and able to do what I've been taught? It's not like college. Where or university, we just get a bunch of information. They send you out. It's like this was you had to. Do I have what it takes? Is the great question. And um, this was designed to help you answer that question. And then you were welcomed back by a community of men and blessed to start contributing for the good of the society. Now the typical rites, which are primary school, high school, university, moving to a city, are very very poor facilitators of the journey that a man needs to go on. So um, all societies had a way of helping men understand sex, resource allocation, and power, and how to use it for the good of the society rather than just becoming a self-focused man. And uh, what's so sad about our society is not only have we lost the rite of passage, we actually have the opposite messaging that men need, which is as much sex as you can get, as much power as you can accumulate, and as much money as you can spend. So we don't have a vision, we don't have a pathway, and we don't have a society that rewards the kinds of behaviors we actually need to see in men. I've got good news though. There's an alternative society, which is called the church, which has a different vision for sex, money, and power, has a different vision in the world's vision, which is servanthood, faithfulness, and stewardship. And um, we should probably get on with the role of making disciples of young men and young women as well, but we're talking about men in this instance who can play a role in healing our world through godly, strong, servant-oriented leadership. These are glory days for this, mate. These are, these are glory days. And, um, and by the way, I want to say something here. It's not a content dump. 
that hasn't worked. Um, you can, you've got to create it in such a way that it's not just all the pressure's not on the dad. That's why doing it with a community of men in a church is the ideal situation. Access to the community of men, their gifts, their wisdom, their experience, their history. And, um, and they often won't enjoy this. And that's the hardest thing ever. My son doesn't like this. I'm like, yeah, because your son wants to look at porn and play video games and eat pizza every day. That's what it's what he wants to do. Aren't you glad you you know God doesn't let us do what we want to do all the time? He's he disciplines those he loves. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but afterwards, it's going to produce a harvest of righteousness. So, we try and make it as fun as we can. Um, but I think. My son now is 23, uh, getting married next year. And uh, I listen, I wasn't, the book's called The Intentional Father, not The Perfect Father. I made so many mistakes. Uh, but my son would say this. He knew there was guardrails for the journey. That even when he got lost, he wasn't going to be lost forever because he could find the path again. So I think if we do that for our sons, even though we won't do it perfectly, with the goal is to put them on a path to connect with their father where when they leave your house, God will father them the rest of their lives. And I view that as the great job. Now, why don't a lot of dads do that? Several reasons. One, they never had it themselves, like deficit. They want to, but they don't know how. Number two, it's really exhausting and just hard work. And then number three, probably shame from their own stories. Like they don't feel like they have authority in an area of their life. Like I've got one friend who he knew his dad was looking at porn and his dad never talked to him about porn or put porn filters on his computer. So because his dad didn't have authority in the area, he didn't feel like he could challenge his son and it created a stronghold in my friend's life that took years to overcome. So what do we do? We go to God, we ask for mercy, we humble ourselves, we take it day by day and we just play the long game. And if, if I can give you any advice, it's this. It's play the long game. Think about the arc of life. Don't think about two years. Think about 20 years. And um, that alleviates so much pressure. You know, I'm trying to build a relationship with my son where they want to live near us and drop the grandkids off because they want multi-generational family blessing, which I think is God's will. And so that's a different sort of thing. Our society today idolizes the ideal image of a dad today is a guy in his mid-20s throwing an infant in the air. And in the Bible, it's an old man blessing grandchildren. And so we've got to, we've got to have a longer vision. Oh, that's beautiful. I, one of the things I've heard you say as well is we, you were looking to, and you look, we look to, build a relationship with our sons whereby they bring their sin to us rather than hide it from us. So talk to us about how you how you create that kind of relationship where, um, I mean, that's a very unusual thing, isn't it? I think I think growing up, I would never have brought my, my issues to my dad. I would have been terrified. And that's the natural reaction we see in the garden, Adam and Eve hiding from God the Father. And yet we know things could have gone so differently that had just come to the loving Father and brought it into the open. So how have you, how have you sought to cultivate that kind of relationship? Well, I haven't done it perfectly. I mean, the the number one thing I try to help my son understand, I still say this to him all the time. I am for you. I'm for you, man. All the resources I have, my money, my wisdom, my time, my energy is yours. I'm here to serve you, man. What do you need? And I think the greatest pain in my life is of my early 20s, just not having, I moved to another country didn't have proximity 
And I try. I said to my son, you know, I'm here for you, mate. So it took him many, many years to believe that he confessed his sin without getting in trouble. And he's still in consequences, but there's a difference between a consequence, which it's your job to enforce because that's how life works, and trouble and disappointment and shame. Um, I can be by nature a very critical person. I don't mean to be. Um, I, it's like I'm an INTJ. I don't even know what half this stuff means, but anyway, I'm a judger. So I can be judgmental. I don't mean to be, but I can be. And so I've worked very, very hard to come over to to get my first reaction right. So, the you know, here comes your kid. He's done something wrong. It's your first reaction. is like, what are you doing? How many times have I to tell? It's it's a fail. So you've got to just that level of restraint. We just say, it's okay, man. It's hard to get life right. I understand that. And it took me probably four and a half years of reaffirming the same message. I'm for you. I want to help you. Um, if you're at a party and everyone's smoking weed, call me. You won't get in trouble. I'll come get you if you want to get out of there. It's just a reaffirming messages like that. We're finally in his last year of high school. My son believed it and he started bringing me stuff and testing whether or not that what he said was what I had said all these years was true. And, um, so both of my kids went through a series where they really doubted their faith. And, um, it was hard growing up in New York. It was, it was not a healthy, uh, environment in many ways, amazing in other ways, amazing. Um, but I just said to him, okay. So I remember saying to Nate, Nate said, you know, I don't think I want to be a Christian. And I was like, why? And, um, what do you, what do you, what you think? And he's like, I don't think I want, like self-denial is worth it. And I was like, well, man, that's, yeah, that's a big one. Aren't you glad Jesus is honest? Um, but I said, do you want to become a man though? Because if you want to become a man, we need to keep doing this stuff because this stuff you may not want to be a Christian man, but do you want to be a man? Well, then let's just keep doing this primal path stuff and I'll just dial back some of the faith stuff for a bit. But bro, you got to grow up. You got to get these skills. You got to. And then um, now I said that super casually like that. And I went to my room and cried and started fasting, just crying out, covenant, you know, give me promises for my son's life. And, you know, not all stories end this way, but. Um, he ended up, his youth pastor, uh, sometime later gave him a prophetic word and it just rocked him, rocked him. So that was between probably 14 and a half and 16. So I'm still grinding this stuff out with him and he's, and, and we just kept that friendship. I don't love you because you love Jesus. I love you because you're my son and I'm committed, you know, I'm committed to helping you become who you meant to be. So let's just keep rolling with this long game, mate, long game. Yeah, that's really. Amazing. I haven't done this perfectly. I'm making it sound easier than it is, mate. This is a combination of repentance. I asked my son recently, and I was just like, you know, mate, I've got to have wounded you in there. I'm sorry for the places I've wounded you. It's inevitable. All, all fathers wound their sons, even if we have good intent. And he said something really interesting. He said, "Dad, I, I have memories where I where you quote unquote get it wrong." He says, I don't think I have a single memory where you didn't repent. Like you didn't come to me after and say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. And he said, that's the thing that's the loudest, like the thing I remember the most. I could always count on you to say you're sorry or I forgive. 
And honestly, mate, that's about the best I can do is like constantly ask for forgiveness and repentance. So I think that that built, I modeled that you can do it. I modeled vulnerability. And um, I just would encourage dads to do that, you know. Oh, man, so encouraging. Obviously, it kind of circles back to what we were talking about, the importance of pastors with accountability, because we we like to, we, we find it hard to believe that people want will, will respond well to our vulnerability. But it's often when we are vulnerable, people think they can follow us the most because they, they see our humanity, our authenticity, our honesty. And it's the same, I guess, in pastoring a church as it is in pastoring a son in trying to raise him. You've got to, you've got to be a human being rather than try to present yourself as the Messiah to your son or the, your, the Messiah to the church. Like we have a savior, but we got to stop trying to take his job and try to, you know, present ourselves as the savior. Um, I am not the Christ. When they asked, are you the Christ? Look, man, I'm not the Christ. I'm a messenger. You know, I, I, I really do believe that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we, we, cause I've been, um, I took your book and we've been running a, a dad's group for over a year now. And, every week we start with one of the dads share their life story of how they they were fathered and some of the good bits and bad bits and some of their aspirations as a father and it, it's been so humbling and moving but also to to hear people's stories and to consider the impact of fathers upon their sons and the challenges that that creates for them in their lives um the need almost for all of us as dads before we can become the kind of fathers we want to be, to deal with our own experience of being fathered. And people talk about father wounds and uh, and the, the challenges that come with that. I know you, you the first part of your book, you talk quite a lot about this, the importance of almost reviewing your life. Uh, there's a quote, you said, any pain that isn't transformed gets transmitted. Um, what, what would be some of your encouragement to, to dad's uh, as they set out on a journey like this in terms of processing some of their own experience of being father and their own wounds. You've got to, Jung said this, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will control our life and we will call it fate. And most men's lives are controlled by unconscious wounds and forces, but they just think this is how life is. And so a huge part of it is to go back and examine your life. So, you know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And you've, you've got to sit with your story and you've got to ask God, like, how did this impact me? Yeah, so 25% of the intentional fathers, basically for you, when we do the Primal Path course, that's the first, before we tell dads to do the discipleship program, we say, take six weeks and go through these, spend six weeks on yourself. And um, because you've got to be in touch with uh, with your own with your own pain and the gifts that you're going to bring to the table, um, I did an exercise. It took me quite some time to do. Um, I would I would sit. A lot of times, people say, "Well, you know, how do you read so much?" Or you know, like you seem pretty thoughtful. And I'm like, you know what it is? I just sit for long periods of time and ponder. And uh, I'm you know, very, very well known in my tiny little world as sitting in a chair with an iPad and a note for 45 minutes, thinking on one topic and writing everything that comes to mind on it, just like just sitting there. And um, so that's borne so much fruit in my life, mate. clear thinking on hard issues, for example. Um, but I did this for every year of my life. And I did what I want to call an emotional map because I've been through some horrific, traumatic events that do not seem to have touched me. And I have been through some tiny things that have profoundly wounded me. 
And um, so I just went year by year and I would just sit and I would just say, I try and think through every memory of that year. What was first grade like? Where did I go to school? Who were my friends? What did they say to me? What messages did I hear from my teachers? How present were my parents? I just jot that down. Now I'm 47. I've done it for 47 years. And you start seeing sovereign themes. You start seeing repeating unhealthy and ungodly patterns. You start seeing how the wounds of one season deform the next season or the gifts of one season accelerate the next season. And you start to develop quite a bit of um, awareness, personal awareness. And um, now when you're aware, you still have to do the right thing with it. Um, but I, I want to encourage dads to do that. Um, I think some of the greatest parenting damage we do is prescribing from our own experience into our kids' worlds. They may not struggle with what you struggle with. You know, my son is so different than me. He's similar in some ways, but very different in many other ways. And I've got to lower my expectations that he just becomes a 2.0 better version than me. And just he needs to be the version of himself that God has made him to be. So you want to know what you carry. You've got to have an awareness. Then you've got to figure out how to skillfully deploy it in appropriate times. And I think if, if a man is self-aware, self-restrained, others-focused, but then knows the wisdom he can carry, um, my default mode, my kids will tell you this, is they call it lecturing. It's like, oh, dad's going dad's gonna to lecture. And I just say, well, it's not a lecture. It's an impartation of hard-fought for wisdom. But again, I had to realize, oh, I'm just prescribing here. They're not ready. They're not receptive. This is a content dump. This won't change them. Uh, Chris Voss, do you know who Chris Voss is? He wrote an amazing book that all dads should read called Never Split the Difference. And he's the former head of the FBI negotiating task force. It's a really fun book to listen to. Every chapter opens with him negotiating some hostage crisis or bank robbery. And um, I, I read his book a while back and used that heavily in my parenting to make sure that I wasn't prescribed. He calls it tactical empathy, that I wasn't just dumping my, you know, here's my wounds. I want you to know all about them. They may not even need to know about half your wounds. Um, or here's our family history. They may not need to know some of that stuff. So you got to you got to be aware you got to you got to understand it and then you got to figure out how to steward it and um, that's a high book recommendation for me on how to help you determine what your kids need at what season. I'm um, just by a, a, a freebie endorsement. I said to my wife, I'm reading this book by an FBI negotiator, and he gave me all these practical ways to talk with my wife. And at the end of the conversation, she said, "I don't even care if that was like FBI crap. I invite you to do that every time we talk. That's the best conversation we've ever had." <laughs> So wow. I think that could help some men get in touch with uh, how to communicate from their past skillfully. Yeah, there you go. Every man's going to go out and buy that book now. <laughs> I do not get a commission, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. And, I mean, one of the one of the things you recommended as homework, in, I mean, I'm one of your students in the Primal Path, but one of the things you recommended is watching the film, The Work, which we watched as a dad's group, this film about uh, a group of uh, men in a high-security prison who essentially do some group therapy and talk about the wounds that they experienced from their fathers. And, man, that is a visceral film. I think it, it ended. Yes. And we just, all the dads just sat in silence for like half an hour as we just kind of like, what just happened? 
but it shows us the the stakes of the yeah, impact that fathering has and the need to examine our lives and to make sure that we're able to pass on what we want to pass on to our kids uh, and do so intentionally isn't it you want to you want to be you want to be your whole self fully present fully aware of what you're doing what you're bringing um, certainly something that we as a dad's group are finding hugely helpful um, in just thinking through which it's fine for us as a dad's group, but I guess one of the questions that I would often get asked is, this is great for dads, but what about our sisters? What about single parents who are trying to raise kids without the help of a man around? What would you say by way of encouragement to them when thinking about raising sons? Well, I mean, how many, how many men's lives have been changed by their mothers, mate? Mothers are a gift. Single moms are heroes, particularly if the mom, you know, is just trying to raise her kid and dad's just bailed heroes mate standing ovation um my principles do apply primarily to men but they can be adopted for moms you know it's again the key issue is intentionality so number one if you just have a vision of who you want what you want your kid to know be and do by the time they leave the other thing i would say is men need men and so can you get some men from your local community i think the the uh, it's building an ecosystem. So your son's going to need friends. He's going to need godly influences who are peers who he connects with. He's going to need older mentors, like a youth leader or a youth worker who can often even do what parents can't do. Um, he's going to need adult figures that shape him, going to need a community of men to participate in. So I would just say, don't feel like you have to do this all on your own. And if you do feel like you don't have anybody Go to the local church and just say, fellas, you're up. You are up. This kid needs something in his life. So we are called to to be the family of God to one another. And so I would try and help that mum as many, you know, honor her efforts, honor her her work, and then provide the supplemental things she's going to need to sort of help that young man. And listen, man, this stuff, this stuff can be super awkward, but it doesn't take as much as you think. You know, some of my, I, I was an intentional dad. Um, I don't say that I wasn't perfect, but I, I really was intentional. But when I've sat down with both my kids and said, what do you remember the most? Half the big things I was super intentional about, they were like, oh, we appreciated that and that was helpful. But it's often just, the, it's just often attention. It's spontaneity. You know, one of the most meaningful things that happened when I was young as a mentor just took, I remember this, I was 18. He took me down the beach and we walked around and he just said, Hey man, I just wanted to ask. I was working as a butcher at a meat shop at the time. It was a super rough environment. And he just said, how's it going at work, man? A lot of guys your age aren't working. They're at university. How's it going working with all those? And I almost cried. Nobody had asked me or recognized that I was not experiencing what normal guys my age experienced. And we just walked around for an hour and had an ice cream. And that's a standout memory for my late teenage years. That's just a mentor checking in. So never under the, underestimate the power of reaching out for a heart. And um, part of the other thing I'd say um, to, to moms and to sisters would be men tend to under communicate in a breathtaking way. So, um, you're going to be like, I'm not getting enough information. Don't don't nag for more intel. Just tr- just pray and trust and keep doing it right. 
Uh, when a seed goes in the ground, I often say this, no one gives a standing ovation for the seed. Like, oh my gosh, do you see they put a seed in over there? But you just put the seeds in, but you know that seed contains everything that's necessary for the harvest you want. And I just say, keep, don't focus on the, on the harvest, focus on the planting and God will take care of the rest over time. Well, there we have it. What did you think? I hope you are inspired and found some of that helpful. And one of the things I've thought a lot about since I recorded with John is the potential opportunity for mission that this offers us in the church. You know, it occurs to me that it's often in spaces around issues where the world and the church meet that there's a great potential for gospel fruitfulness. So when the world acknowledges or communities acknowledge we have a real need here and the church says we're also passionate about speaking into that need, then it's that we often see great things happening. We saw that with the kids club in the UK, particularly in the 90s. We've seen that with Alpha. We've seen it even with something as seemingly straightforward as carol services. The world wants this. The church also wants this. Harvest and gospel fruitfulness results. Well, how about thinking of the primal path like that? How about inspiring and equipping dads? How about creating communities of men to encourage, equip, train, motivate and support? The reality is a lot of men are growing up who don't know what it means to be a father. And there are a lot of sons and daughters growing up who don't know what a healthy or involved or engaged father looks like. There was something that John said in our conversation. He said, most men don't want to be jerks or predators. They want a vision of their lives that's bigger and better than that. Well, in a society with fewer and fewer men or dads around, who's gonna help train those sons and those boys in the way that they should go? Did you know that up until the 17th century, almost all books written on parenting were addressed and aimed at men, at dads? Something that has almost entirely been reversed in the last few decades. Who hasn't run a parenting course in their church and discovered that it's mostly and mainly and almost only women that attend those things? Well, maybe it's time that the church stepped up again. And by the way, this isn't just for men who've got sons or daughters at home or at all. Regular listeners of the podcast will recall my conversation a few months ago with Danielle Trewick. She said that the church is a family and it is actually supposed to be a place where our status as brothers and sisters counts more than our family ties, which means that all men, whether they have kids or not, are invited to take seriously the role, their role in raising sons and daughters of courage and character. It's a community that's meant to take seriously our call to, well, make disciples. You know, that's the thing that I'm really left buzzing with and inspired by at the end of all this is the potential gospel and missional opportunity that the church has to be fathers to the fatherless and to help fathers be better fathers, <laughs> to inspire and empower men to be forces for good in their communities. Well, oh, I hope God has blessed you and spoken to you through today's conversation. As I mentioned, all of the information to the things that John and I talked about, including descriptions and where to find more about the primal path is in the notes to today's episode so do click on those and do please share this episode wherever you can and let's see god work amazing wonders in our communities and our families god bless you see you again next time